Welcome to the Northern Virginia Academy conversation about building community. I'm Matt Fisk here with me with Aaron Jackson and Will and Tasha Archer, our very special guests. And we're so excited to have you here and talk with you. Uh, if you wouldn't mind would you, um, introducing yourself, tell us a bit about you. Well, it, it really is an honor to be a part of this, this conversation. Uh, my name is Will Archer and, um, and I, um, serve uh, with the Potomac Valley Church, serving the full-time ministry with the Potomac Valley Church. And Tasha and I, we've been married for uh, 20 years. This will be our 21st year in September. And uh, we have a 16-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter. And uh, we're we're really excited about where this conversation takes us as we talk about really building community. Yep, and I'm Tasha. I'm his wife. And I've been in the ministry for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we... We have been on a lot of journeys, you know, as we've been in the ministry, so we're excited to talk about it. I'm sure quite a bit of it'll pop up. It's been about 20 years being in the ministry, and uh, and our kids, so that means our kids have been in the ministry for, you know, as long as they've been alive, and they've had to endure this, but they are are wonderful children. (laughs) Good save. Yes. (laughs) Okay, well, so what... In, in talking to anybody that mm-hmm. has been around the Potomac Valley Church, uh, people that work for it, uh, one of the main things that we hear is this idea of we're going to build community. Right. And it's in it's in everything. It's around everything. And so we wanted to talk to you about that journey. So if, how did you get started on this journey of building community in the Potomac Valley Church? Absolutely. I, you know, I think the, the, the driver for us to really focus on community was really trying to think about what it would look like to really live out the, the, the ministry of Jesus, um, the live as the first century disciples would have lived in our 21st century context. And so we, we struggle to kind of make sense of that. Um, uh, we've had the, the honor, as Tasha mentioned, to be in the ministry now for, for 22 years. And for the first 10 years that we're in the ministry, uh, much of what we're doing was really focusing on growing our ministry um, raising up leaders, kind of uh, running the playbook that we were taught. Uh, but then what we noticed was... And feeling guilty a and, lot. And feeling guilty a ton, <laughs> for sure. And, and, and honestly, we noticed is that we would have short-term gains in the ministry. We'd see you know three or four years where we'd see dynamic growth. Mm-hmm. And then there would be incredible burnout for us and for our family group leaders. And we're trying to make sense of, okay, why do we keep having these short-term gains and, and then things and in burnout. Um, now, that, that wasn't just localized to us. It was a systemic problem that we saw. And oftentimes what we would do is we would change out ministers every three or four years so we can have a, a jolt of energy again. Um, we said that's just not, that's not a sustainable way to do things. Um, we were fortunate that right after our youngest was born back in 2008, we got asked I got asked specifically to go on a Hope Youth Corps to Indonesia. And, uh, and here I was with, you know, our second child just born. I was in Indonesia in August of 2008. And I was blown away by what I saw in, in the church in Indonesia. Indonesia is, of course, the country with the largest Muslim population in the world. Um, and here was a vibrant, energized, community-oriented church that was reaching and is still reaching the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor, building community with none of the ebbs and flows that I was seeing in the North American churches that I'd served in. And so we've been on a journey really for the past 12 years 
to study what they're doing. And so um, now this is important. So he came back home after that. So I could not go on this because I had just had my daughter and, you know, that would be unwise. Mm. So <laughs> we are. So he came back and he's like, they have 800 studies going on all the time. And I was like, that's pretty impossible. <laughs> How in the world can up. you have 800 studies going on all the time? Mm-hmm. What does that even look like? I can't even fathom that. And he also came home just, oh, on the other part was 800 studies and they don't seem stressed. Like they're just yeah, right. letting it be, right. you know, like it was just, yeah, this is how it always is. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, so I'm like, I have to see this for myself. Like, this is hard to believe that this could happen. And in what context does something like this happen? Yeah, how could one person study the Bible with 800 people? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, really, sure. how is that possible? No. <laughs> no. You make a really good point because, honestly, the this was not true for the history of our fellowship of churches and true necessarily within the broad context of our, refera- ref- our restoration roots, but our model has been centered on one person really being the hero mm-hmm. or, or one couple or a few people being the hero. And our ministry staff, they're often designed to be the engine. And so we, we have them being the engine that keeps things going and, and you know, injects energy and gets the people fired up. Mm. Um, but what we saw there was that the hero of the churches in Indonesia and broader, broadly now in Southeast Asia is the family group leader. Mm-hmm. And, and it is the, the disciples are really empowered to really take on greater responsibility and a greater sense of ownership. It was so much so that when we go there, people are you meet you meet regular disciples and they come up to you and they're like, "Hey, you have to like, yeah, Harlem and Vanya lead our church and they're great, but you have to meet my family group leader." That's the person. Wow. That's who you need to meet. Like, they're amazing. This is what I learned from them. This is what they do. Like, it's just so amazing to see how much the regular person <laughs> feels empowered. And is able to lead and take people to another level. And they just, they meet each other's needs. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to substantively really study this, what we were learning there. And so we made a decision, Tasha and I, for the, you know, seven years prior to us coming to Potomac Valley, that we would travel to Southeast Asia regularly, that we would engage with them. So we've, we've been to Indonesia, we've been to Singapore, we've been able to get with a number of the leaders and build great relationships but when we came to Potomac Valley, one of the first things that we discussed with the board and with our core leaders is that as a church, we'd make a decision that we would actually learn from the churches in Southeast Asia over a 10-year period, and that every year we would take groups of people every year to go and learn. Because I, I didn't want the uh, learning to be bottlenecked based on us. I really, And I also didn't want it to be localized just with leaders disciples from every background are welcome to come on these journeys with us. And we've been doing that over the past five years. Uh, next month, we're going to go on our fifth um, uh, of, of 10, 10 trips to Indonesia nope. just to learn from them. Um, uh, but but I want to be really clear. It's not an Indonesian model. Right. They're just practicing what we see played out in the Bible. And, and, and it's very simple. And I look forward to us kind of unpacking the simplicity of the plan. The key is not that it's a complicated strategy. The key is implementation. Mm-hmm. It's the practice. 
and the commitment to developing a, a really a Christian community and not simply having people attend church and add members to an organization. So that's 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 really what we've been doing, and, and I'm excited to, to tell you what we're learning and very, very willingly confess that we're in the process of learning. We haven't arrived, uh, but it, it has been a 12-year kind of study mm. of what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I do want to be also, I want to be clear about this as well. This, this does, in no way do you embrace one idea and you divorce yourself from all the things you know that already work. Actually, I think it's important to be constantly in a state of learning where you take what you know and you build on it um, based on principles and practicals. Um, so, um, so you don't have to wait 12 years to put this into practice. The things we're talking about today, hopefully you can listen, digest, and decide what ways you can put this into practice for your family, for your family group, and for your respective congregation. That's right. awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. No so well, let's get in a bit of, you know, moving on to actually what you did learn. What, what do you feel like you really <laughs> did learn? So you saw this, you get back, what happens next? Yeah, I think here's what we're learning. What we're learning is it's important to uh, decide what, who you are and where you're going to stand and also what things you want to let go of. Um, I'll tell you, to explain that, let me tell you a little bit of, of the Potomac Valley story, if you will. So our, our church um, was a region of the Northern Virginia Church, super grateful for the Northern Virginia Church. We're a region of the Northern Virginia Church. About 12 mm -hmm. years ago, we went from being a region to being a, a, a cooperative congregation. Uh, for the seven years that would follow, we have incredible leaders that pour themselves out, do their very best, give all of their energies. But in a seven-year period, a group that started at 132 disciples in seven years grows to 160 and then sees decline that takes us back to 135. So in seven years, we grow by three people. And that, that, and that is with like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, investment in staff, facilities, energy, evangelism, like with really great disciples that are incredibly capable. We only grow by three. Mm -hmm. And so that was the context that we came into um, when, we, when we came to, to, to Potomac Valley. Also, as many of you are familiar, the election of uh, President Obama in 2008 was very um, significant for our congregation because the lack of connection and the lack of deep community conviction was revealed in a lot of the discord and divisiveness that we struggled with as a mm -hmm. congregation following that election. And, um, and you know, that's not anyone to blame. That, that's our sin that was revealed. The, the, the cliques and the factions and the division was also a real thing that we had to deal with. So we, we have a congregation where there was deep hurt, a congregation where there was incredible loss and very little growth. Uh, and a congregation where there was no clearly defined vision. So we, we aren't simply just a congregation. We're a congregation that's really at a very difficult place five years ago. Um, but that's actually the best situation to do great work. Because when you're at the bottom, you'll try anything. And so, so maybe that's why they invite us to come in. Because we're like, we're, they're like, sure, we can go to Indonesia. Sure, we can do whatever. Anything but what we're doing works. And it wasn't for a lack of hard work, I want to be really clear, or a lack of 
conviction about the Bible. We just had some, some structural things we had to address. So what we did was for the four months that followed, we took a page out of Randy McKean's book, and we literally went to every family group, and we asked two questions. What is your uh, vision for the, you know, the next 10 years for the Potomac Valley Church? Um, you know, and that was you know, basically 2015 to 2025. Where do you see Potomac Valley? And what's your kingdom dream? Pretty much the universal message we got was we need stability. We need solid leadership. We really want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, we do want to see elders appointed. We want to see deacons appointed because the, the congregation had gone through lots of leadership change because that's usually how we solve problems in our family, in our family of churches. When things don't seem to work, we just change the leader. If we keep changing the leader, it's going to change instead of really embracing that we need congregational transformation as well as leadership, um, you know, uh, kind of a paradigm shift with the leaders. So we listened for four months. We took the next eight months that followed, and we did deep teaching. And then we began a process in the, in the fall of that year, um, and this was the fall of 2015, of fasting for a day in September, three days in October, seven days in November, and then we started uh, the new year with a 21-day fast. When we started that 21-day fast, we invited Ed Anton to come from Hampton Roads and to teach our church about repentance because we knew that we needed to repent individually but also congregationally. It, that was a major contributing factor to our understanding of community because we understood that for change to happen, it wasn't simply that one person or a small group of people had to change. The whole congregation, the whole community needed to really embrace change. Um, we should probably talk about the, um, oh, we should probably talk about the repentance and how the process went as Ed walked us through it. We had individual repentance. We, we actually did that last. That was the hardest and the longest. We were there for about four hours listening to individuals confess all of their sin um, as to what it looked like, uh, how, it had, how their sin had affected the whole community. Right. But also there was Bible talk sin. You know, like how has my sin contributed to this Bible talk not being a godly one? You know, what, what have I done? How have I contributed to this? And then we also had family sin, you know, so each family sat down and talked about how their sin had contributed to the atmosphere of their family or their roommates, their household, whatever. Um, so everybody had a week to repent, basically. It just went progressively until you got to me as an individual. I am, this is how I've contributed to the culture of the church. That was a huge turnaround for everybody. I mean, even people... So we did that on a Sunday. So people came, even people who were visiting came to church and sat through four hours of people confessing sin. And, and then after that, we all sat down and we ate and we celebrated because mm -hmm. we felt free. And <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was no more guilt. <laughs> there was yeah. no more, you know. And then after that, we talked through how we were going to repent and what that was going to look like. And that, too, was a process throughout the whole month. Because we thought about how we're going to repent as a family, how we're going to repent as a family group, how we're going to repent individually, and was there another one? Maybe discipling relationships. No, it was. There was it was. It was. I missed one. In, yeah, I know individually, I did. as a family, you know, uh, as a family group, and then congregationally. So we didn't miss one. No. You okay. Didn't. No, no. It. And here's oh, looky the, the, here. Yeah, you, you, you're right on it. I think the bottom line was that we had to take collective responsibility 
for where we are, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and I think that was huge for us to be able to form a community that was going to be committed to, um, you know, being a healthy, spiritual, godly community. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to also say we're incredibly grateful for Phil Booker, who came and, and he did our call for our solemn assembly. So we were able so to. So he also sat through four hours of sin. Thank we, you, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for doing <laughs> that. So again, it's important to note this. This isn't, you know, this doesn't speak to anything that Tasha and I have done or the Potomac Valley Church has done. This has actually been a community effort. So we enlisted the help of brothers and sisters in Maryland. We enlisted the help of brothers and sisters in Virginia. We learned from brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia. Wherever there are best practices around the world, inside our fellowship or outside our fellowship, we made a decision that we're going to be learners. So we're, we've, we've decided to do that. And that was a big part of the commitment that we made at that solemn assembly. We said, from this point forward, we're going to be committed to building a righteous community and a, a congregation of incredible faith, uh, incredible faith and deep conviction. Um, I want to note that after we'd made that decision, more sin came out. So it's, it, it, it's a yep. messy process. But it was great because from that point forward, we we're very clear. And almost every Sunday from the pulpit, we clearly articulate, we're just messed up people. We're not professing to have it figured out. We're not professing to, yeah, we're not, yeah, we're not professing to, to have the solution. What we do believe is that the Bible is our standard. We do believe that the scriptures provide the core for our values. Mm-hmm. And we do believe it's important for us to have a very expansive view in terms of how we utilize methods like this one that we're utilizing, you know, using a podcast to be able to communicate the message of the gospel. So it took all of the all of that process just to get us all on the same page as a church. That this is how we this is how we deal with sin, this is how we build community, this is this is how we love each other. So dealing with sin and confronting sin and exposing sin is a huge part of making sure that you're setting the, to me, what I'm hearing is the foundation yes. of, of community. So you can try to build community, but if there's a ton of sin going on behind the scenes, there's always going to be something off mm-hmm. is, the, is what I'm hearing. You're absolutely right. And I think it's important to note that a lot of our emphasis is usually on on individual sin that individuals are committing. And we need to have a sense, a strong sense of personal responsibility, mm-hmm. no question. But we need to have a strong sense of collective responsibility, um, which this is the focus that you see as you read through the Old Testament. It's mind-blowing to me that there is a call for collective change. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a call for collective unity. And I think that's something that we struggle with in a Western context, I know we definitely struggle with here in, in the congregation where we serve and we struggle with as, a, as Americans is it's not simply I'm going to be righteous. I've got to be committed to our community being one that truly reflects the message and the mission of Jesus. Um, and that also changes in many ways. It inverts the relationship between uh, congregants and those that are in a uh, position of leadership. And what it does is it empowers us to move from simple membership in an organization or membership in a church to we're called to be a gathering of disciples where everybody's really invested in uh, building God's church with whatever gifts, whatever talents or time or treasure we have, 
we're all invested in this collective work. Fantastic. So okay. I think what we're going to do is, is uh, we're going to pause here in our conversation and we'll pick back up in the next episode um, with the archers. So thank you so much. And we'll check you. you on our next, uh, next episode.